Hi there, welcome to Beyond the Benchmark. My name is Mo Zafzal and I'm the Chief Investment Officer of VFG. This is an edited version of our internal podcast, more than just a typical market analysis podcast. In each episode, we go beyond the benchmark, delving into current topics affecting markets, economies and investor psychology. Each episode, I'll be discussing global trends with guests and experts from within EFG and further afield. If you'd like to get in touch, please email me on beyond at fgam.com. Repeat that, beyond at fgam.com. So this week, we have, uh, uh, again, a very interesting global macro roundtable, um, which coincides with our quarterly insight publication. So uh, if you are listening to this, please go to uh, the EFG website to download the quarterly insight and you can follow along the debate uh, with the macro team uh, as you go through the the document. Document's called A Whole New World, just in case uh, you wanted to know the title. So uh, on the the macro uh, panel, uh, roundtable panel we have today, we have uh, uh, Daniel Murray, Gianluigi Mandruzzato, Joaquin Tull, Stefan Gerlach, and Paul Templeton. So, um, welcome everybody to uh, to uh, to the to the podcast. So, um, I'll kick it off, and uh, as we do with the quarterly insight, and we've been running this for many many years now. Uh, but uh, as we normally do, we we give a quick overview of the markets. Uh, this is on page two of the insight. And um, the first comment really is around kind of stock market rebound. Obviously, the rebound has been much, much faster um, than sort of previous recovery periods. Um, and that, um, you know, that in essence, we've talked about on this pod- podcast quite a lot is that, you know, is the unusual shape um, of uh of this recession in a very sharp, sharp shock and then the subsequent recovery without necessarily all those excesses that built up beforehand that lead to a much more sort of durable uh, and uh, less aggressive downturn, in, in fact, uh, as we know. So one of the kind of interesting features of um, um, you know recessions is that bubbles usually come before a recession um, and they usually pop that forces the recession. Um, in this case, um, the, the, the bubble that um, never pops is indeed uh, China. Uh, so I'm going to bring in uh, Paul here to talk a little bit about you know, the thinking around why the bubble never pops. Uh, Paul. Hi, thank you, Mose. Yes, um, it's an intriguing question, isn't it? Uh, I, I started this piece by looking at the Premier Wen Jibao comments in 2007. Martin Wolf in the Financial Times uses this a lot, that uh, the previous problem with China's economy is that growth is unstable, unbalanced, uncoordinated and unsustainable, and therefore it couldn't last. And of course, that was followed by lots of other things, you know, commentary on the sort of number of new apartment blocks have been built, you know, big hedge funds taking short positions in China. People have just been waiting year after year after year for it to just fail. And as I was writing this piece on China, uh, growth forecasts for China were going up and up. And so, I mean, not dramatically so, but now we think 2% or even more than that growth. So this year, uh, where everyone else is you know, not experiencing sort of any growth at all. In fact, very, very sharp recession. So came at a time when this new book was written by Thomas Orlick, uh, describing China as the bubble that never pops. And I find that intriguing. Um, it's really quite a simple assessment. Uh, if you think about the uh, dot-com bubble bursting or you know, the global financial crisis or Japan's bubble bursting. What happened after that was that those economies went into quite a steep recession, often accompanied by deflation. They had no nominal growth. Um, But as long as China can still grow, and this is the essence of the argument that Thomas Orlick puts forward, as long as it can grow its nominal GDP, and it definitely looks as though it can still do that at a reasonable rate and keep interest rates low, 
then you can carry on for ages. Mm. Um, that's the intriguing thing. And I think he's right. As long as you can generate some nominal growth. And that actually is then is the key to some of the other issue that we discuss, and that is whether or not public sector debt is sustainable. With interest rates so low, if you can carry on growing in nominal terms, then you're okay. This is something we may I guess we make reference a bit later on in terms of the UK's experience the post Second World War as well as the US. Um, you know, Daniel, thoughts uh, thoughts around uh, Paul's comments? Yeah, so I think the only times we've seen uh, such a sharp surge in government debt as we have done recently is during previous wartime periods. And, um, uh, you know, so in some respects, analogies to the current period with war are not completely um, out of order um, and do have some relevance. But I think what's also unusual is the fact that actually debt as the share of GDP has been rising for some time already. So it's not just that it's suddenly shot up and has indeed far exceeded previous peaks relative to GDP, but it's the fact that it's it's been on a rising trend for some time and it's so high. And as Paul alluded to, the big constraint here for governments is really their ability to keep financing that debt. And that's been helped by a few things. One is, of course, the fact that inflation has been trending lower over the past um, uh, 40 years. And that has naturally brought down the cost of borrowing. The second thing is um, that during the global financial crisis and during the crisis of this year, central banks have stepped in and bought assets very widely. And that has also obviously um, kept borrowing costs low. And the third thing is, as, as Paul alluded to, is that real interest rates are very low. So not only are interest rates low in nominal terms, but um, they're also below the rate of inflation. And when that happens, then um, that actually makes government debt and indeed debt of any sort much more affordable. So I think as we've seen in Japan, when you have um, those conditions in place, actually debt can stay high and it can persist at a high level for quite some time. And I guess the key thing here is is that, that, that nominal growth, right? The key thing is to make sure that if you are going to finance stuff, that you actually use it to to actually grow uh, rather than it uh, disappearing. I think that's right. And obviously, if you think about it in fairly simple terms, if um, nominal growth is positive, then uh, that suggests that government revenues should be growing at a similar rate to um, nominal growth. And so that in turn will help to fund uh, the payback of any debt or indeed the servicing of any debt. So having nominal growth above um, the um, nominal rate of interest is um, you know, makes it makes it much easier to keep high rates of debt um, going without running into any sorts of crisis problems. So issuing all that debt and obviously this conveniently brings into where to actually spend that in and uh, rather conveniently is, is climate change. Obviously, we've seen the um, devastating fires in Australia more recently in in, in California, um, and um, and hurricanes um, as well, and there's a great chart on um, uh, on chart four here on on page three that shows um, you know CO two concentration and, and, and global warming, um, and we obviously also have the EU's Green Deal. Um, so uh, Stefan's been um, talking quite a bit about um, the Green Deal. Uh, central banks and uh, income uh, inequality. Um, uh, Stefan, thoughts on on what central banks can do here? Well, um, I think what I think central banks can in fact do quite a bit. As you know, a number of central bankers have had this sort of uh, knee jerk reactions that, uh, well, we as central banks we don't really have the right tools to deal with global warming, etc. But in fact, they do, and I think there's a growing realization of that. But what central banks can do is that they can promote the development of markets for, for green bonds. For instance, they are standard setters, um, and if you can get uh, sort of uh, the same type of standards being adopted uh, across the world uh, for, for judging what is a green bond and so on, that would be conducive to developing the markets. 
they can also um, uh, change regulations, for instance, in, in terms of what they accept as collateral from banks when they lend to banks and they could, could give green bonds preferential treatments uh, and so on. As you know, central banks have their own portfolios. For instance, they have their um, their pension fund portfolios that they manage for their staffs and so on and so forth. Uh, they have their own portfolio as well. Uh, and and this um, portfolios could be invested increasingly into green bonds, etc. So they can do a lot, but I think mainly by helping to develop the markets for, uh, for green bonds. And the consequence of that, I think, will not be so much that... Uh, you, you depress the yields on green uh, bonds by increasing the, the demand, but rather you increase the supply of green bonds as more and more um, bonds are issued for various environmental projects. So I think stimulating this whole market is something that central banks can do. Uh, and that's something I'm, I'm, I'm sure that they will do. Um, we see already now some important central banks such as the ECB saying things to that effect effectively. And then um, obviously... I guess more relevant for the Fed is obviously um, you know uh, inequality. Um, obviously, we have lots of sort of chat from Powell and others um, around the Federal Reserve talking about um, uh, income inequality uh, within the US. Um, um, you know, how does that manifest itself? So, I think the the standard way for central banks to think about. Uh, unemployment and monetary policy uh, was to say that when the unemployment rate falls too low, then there's a growing likelihood that inflation will pick, uh, pick up. So central banks tended to tighten monetary policy as the unemployment rate fell, even though perhaps there were no obvious signs of any inflation, uh, of any inflation. They were just anticipating uh, inflation uh, in the future. But what we've seen in recent year is that, years is that as unemployment rates have come down in many countries, infl- inflation hasn't uh, started to increase. It looks like, to use a technical term, the Phillips curve, the relationship between unemployment and inflation, that has flattened. And uh, what the Fed has said is, is effectively that we know that when unemployment rates are very low, that has beneficial effects for low-income earners and uh, um, communities in the U.S. that have that have relatively high unemployment rates in the past, and, and, and low-income earners. They do much better in a situation where the overall unemployment rate is low. And we need not worry so much about the inflationary consequences of low unemployment um, as we did in the past, because it turns out that unemployment can fall to much lower levels without triggering any inflation. And as you know, the Fed is a little bit different from uh, other central banks in that it has two objectives, an inflation objective, a price stability objective, but it also has an objective in promoting the maximum sustainable level of employment. The Fed really feels that they should now go ahead and put more emphasis on this uh, on this objective because it isn't uh, associated with with higher inflation risk, but it does come with much uh, better or it does support uh, income equality. It does. Uh, tend to uh, boost the incomes of the lowest earning segments of the, of society, and that is an independent objective of the Fed. Now, when the Fed is doing that, as you can imagine, many other central banks will start thinking in the same way. The Bank of Canada has already said something that we need to gear policy increasingly to inequality, and I suspect also other central banks will gradually um, shift their focus away from uh, inflation is so low, there's no reason to worry about it, to the question of how do we boost the economy uh, to create more income inequality, uh, equality, excuse me. You know, I think it's a key point and obviously something that's going to be talked about for, uh, you know, for many years ahead, no doubt, particularly if the Democrats win. Uh, so uh, on that note, uh, we'll flip to page five. Page four shows the... Um, the asset market performance on on a year to date basis and on the quarter, but uh, obviously the big news um, over the next uh, few weeks is going to be uh, the the U.S. election, um, and so um, 
you know, Daniel, obviously um, uh, a big shock with respect to um, to Trump's uh, recent um, visit to the hospital. Um, uh, any thoughts in terms of where odds are at the moment and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, any predictions you, you dare to make at this point? Yes, I think the odds are firmly in favour of Biden at this point. He's uh, ahead of Trump in the polls by about 10 points, depending on which poll you look at. He's ahead of Trump in the majority uh, of the swing states. In fact, Trump is only ahead in one or two, depending on what you include um, in that sample. And the opportunities for Trump to uh, bridge that gap are diminishing. So I think whereas in the last election there's a bit of a novelty uh a bit of a novelty feature associated with Trump. And we know that um, he managed to pick up voters um, after the presidential debates. I think on this occasion, there's less of a novelty uh, feature. And also, he um, is going to have uh, less of an opportunity to pick up um, points in the debates, if indeed any more debates take place. Um, So I think this is really Biden's um, election to lose. Um, he really just has to make sure he doesn't do anything wrong rather than um, actively seeking to do anything to collect more votes. So he, he's really in a very strong position. I think the sorts of things that might swing this around is if we were to see a sudden uh, and sharp improvement in the economic situation, that's known to um, benefit the incumbent. And uh, so that's something to look out for. And of course, um, because uh, with um, COVID-associated closures and its impact on the economy coming and going relatively quickly, that is a possibility, um, although it does look increasingly unlikely at this stage. Um, I think uh, it's also true that um, Trump, the fact that he's had COVID uh, means that um, COVID is going to be in the headlines for him more. And we know that the American public has a pretty poor opinion as to how he handled COVID. So I think the more that we see the word COVID or the word coronavirus in the headlines, the worse that is for Trump as well. So overall, you know, Biden in a pretty strong position. Um, Trump, you know, could catch up, but the um, the chance of him doing that are fading every day we get closer to election day. And just one final point probably is just to watch the markets because we know that um, the uh, incumbent um, has uh, you know, there seems to be a, an increased chance of the incumbent being re-elected if the stock market is in positive territory in the three months prior to the election. Um, so um, yeah, so overall, definitely with Biden, but uh, it's going to be an interesting few weeks we've got coming up. In terms of um, you know sectors that are kind of favoured um in, in with a biden win versus uh sectors that are unfavored obviously we've discussed you know large cap tech as being a, a particular area that um um that um uh, you know biden would be difficult for uh for, for, for the for for them to attack um or attack back should i say um what are your thoughts on you know some of the other sectors obviously you know green um, policies is is one area that um, the Democrats have, have said they'd be kind of interested in. Uh, a- anything else that we should be aware of? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think your point on tech is very well taken. Yesterday, the uh, House Democrats released a report that did indeed um, target large cap tech and suggested that they would be very keen to regulate large cap tech much more heavily if they were able to do so. Um, on the green side, you know, this is something that is coming to the fore, as Stefan highlighted earlier, not just in terms of monetary policy, but also in terms of fiscal policy. And I think um, that whereas Trump actively courted the oil producers and the coal producers, um, the Democrats have um, said uh, already that they would seek to adopt policies that are much more friendly for the environment. And that's you know can be seen in the performance of some of the um, associated stocks that have started to uh, perform much better over the past few months. I think in terms of um, sectors other than uh, green sectors and other than tech, obviously healthcare is a, represents a big part of the US economy and a big part of the US market. And that's really interesting. Um, the 
Democrats, obviously following on from Barack Obama's policies, uh, would seek to broaden our access to healthcare, which, as everybody knows, is you know can be problematic, particularly for those at the lower end of the income scale. Um, but um, you know that whilst that might result in an increase in volumes, it would of course result in cost pressures uh, to try to um, um, manage the expense associated with that. And so that would likely be bad for certain aspects of um, the healthcare space. But at the same time, there would be other um, parts of the healthcare space, in essence, med tech and anything that helps to bring down uh, the cost of healthcare and make it more efficient in the US that would likely benefit. So um, overall, you know, it, it's fairly mixed. Um, and uh, but there would, as ever, be winners and losers on the sector side of things if we were to see the Democrats elected. I guess the, the last point here is obviously you know, the China relationship. I think the general view is that Democrats will be equally uh, uh, will be equally aggressive uh, as the Republicans were on, on and Trump was on China. Um, I think that um, uh, that. Uh, Although I guess Biden will probably club together with some of the other countries um, and have a kind of more united front, uh, and I think that would be quite interesting to see how that um, to see how that plays out. Um, so one person who may be quite happy to see the back of Trump is obviously Chair Powell, <laughs> um, Stefan. Um, you know, any thoughts in terms of you know we we, we touch upon kind of reaching that two percent inflation rate. Any any thoughts at um, you know how the Fed's going to play this? So I think the Fed will actually just continue doing what they have been doing in the past, which is they are trying to support the economy and push inflation up to two percent. Uh, I think that they are quite concerned, in fact, about the fact that they have been unable to achieve uh, inflation of the you know up up to two percent, which is their objective for so long, and it seems likely that they will continue just to plug away at, at, uh, at, at achieving that objective. As you know, they recently announced a, uh, the conclusions of their review um, uh, of, of their monetary policy framework. And one thing that they stressed there was the importance of running, on average, an inflation rate of 2%. So if you do run inflation for, uh, too low for a while, then you have to compensate for that by, by running inflation higher for some period of time. And this, uh, and this idea is called average inflation targeting. And while the Fed was very careful uh, in saying that we're not going to have some mechanical formulation of what this average inflation rate uh, or uh, sort of uh, average inflation targeting regime would look like, they have made pretty clear that they hope to achieve the inflation rate target, an inflation target of 2% pretty soon, and will thereafter try to push inflation perhaps a little bit above that target for some period of time to get back to an average of inflation or 2%. It's very difficult um, if you're a central bank. If you don't achieve your objective after some period of time, uh, financial market participants and the public at large will start concluding that while you have a target of, of 2% in the case of the Fed. And the Fed has not achieved it on average for the last 10 years. So in, in thinking about the likely future evolution of the US economy, we will not expect 2% inflation, but we're going to expect something like 1.5% inflation. And then that complicates the management of monetary policy because that sort of pushes down the average level of interest rate uh, in the direction of zero. And since uh, central banks really can't uh, or uh, the Fed has not wanted to adopt negative interest rates. Uh, lower interest rates mean simply that they have less margin to stimulate the economy, and that's, that's a problem. So they want to make sure that inflation expectations are are being pushed up also to 2%. I think it'll be very interesting to see how that plays out over 2021 and then 2022. Uh, certainly rate expectations of the rates are not going to go up till 2023. Uh, so, uh, you know, which doesn't seem unreasonable at this point, but it certainly does risk um, uh, a higher inflation rate uh, and maybe above average inflation rate uh, going forward. Um, yes, I think that's exactly the concern. That uh, And one reason why perhaps some uh, central banks in Europe will not go this way, they worry 
about the fact if you do push inflation up a little bit about uh, above two percent well how can you then stop it it might move up to three and four and so on and so forth mm. so uh, it would be interesting to see if any other central banks adopt a similar strategy to the fed well we'll certainly watch uh, watch for that very carefully so uh, moving on to uh, uh, the uk obviously the central bank there is you know, flirting with negative rates, uh, but uh, it's not really a topic that we're going to cover today. But uh, um, um, obviously, we've seen a bit of a retail rebound in the UK. Um, uh, Daniel, any sort of thoughts whether this is um, sustainable? Yeah, I mean, I think this is part of a trend that was um, occurring anyway prior to the COVID crisis um, in terms of retail sales being driven by um, the online um uh, component of the market and so what we've seen since lockdown of course is that and since restrictions are placed in place is that um, individuals have just been ordering a lot more stuff online uh, they've been investing in um, goods and services that help improve the quality of their home life and the quality of their housing stock and um, actually the uk being a relatively um, small country physically with relatively high population density in uh, in many parts of the country, lends itself very well to this model of online delivery, sorry, online ordering with um, quick delivery um, thereafter. So I think um, that trend will continue. Obviously, it would be um, unreasonable to expect the growth rates to be as rapid as they have been in the past uh, few months. Um, and those very rapid growth rates over the past few months clearly reflect the fact that the economy uh, shrunk very dramatically in the second quarter of the year. So the UK um, economy experienced one of the sharpest contractions amongst all developed economies in the second quarter, but it has also ba- uh, bounced back very robustly um, thereafter. So um, overall, I, I think that um, whilst the, the pain was pretty severe on the downside, the recovery has in general exceeded expectations, and uh, that's in no small part due to this retail sales effect and that you mentioned. So we also have um, Brexit on the uh, on the horizon. Uh, well, probably the wrong word. Actually, we've been talking for the last five years, but but maybe the the end is nigh. Uh, at least um, uh, thoughts about um, uh, the Brexit outlook, and uh, if indeed we get a deal. Yeah, we're we're reaching um, the crunch point here. Um, uh, Boris Johnson has said that if agreement isn't reached by the 15th of October, so in a week's time, um, then um, he will be forced to work on the assumption of a no-deal Brexit and will prepare the country for doing that. Um, The two main sticking points um, seem to be fishing rights, which um, are important for um, obviously countries like Um, France, the Netherlands, and some of the Nordic countries that trade um, uh, in fish and and use the UK's fishing waters quite extensively. Um, But um, that nonetheless represents a very small proportion of their economies and also represents a very small proportion of the UK economy. But it is a very, it's something about which people feel very strongly um, emotionally. So that's one one aspect. And then on the the UK side of things, it's, um, uh, there's a great deal of sensitivity around uh, ensuring that um, the UK doesn't provide um, unfair uh, state support to companies that will give them a competitive advantage over um, European companies. Um, And so those are the two main issues. If we understand it correctly, there seems to be broad agreement on a great many other issues, but these are the two that are really um, sticking in the craw. And, uh, you know, we have seen before that both Boris Johnson and the EU do have a habit of reaching last-minute agreements. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if something like that happened on this occasion. Um, and I think it's also possible that although Boris Johnson has said the 15th of October is the last day by which he's prepared to do a deal, of course, there are um, ways in which uh, communication channels could well be kept open um, into the year end. So still... Um, optimistic that a deal will get done at some level. Um, the easiest thing to do, of course, is for a very basic deal to be agreed and for the really big, important stuff to be sorted out at a later date. But at the same time, there is very much a tail risk 
that no deal is reached. And that would, I think, be to the detriment of both the EU, but probably more so to the detriment of the UK. Critical stage we're at, but uh, I think, um, you know, I think the core view is that the deal will be done. So uh, crossing the channel now to uh, to Europe um, and, um, uh, you know, we continue to see kind of second waves on on covid and some of these numbers look quite um uh quite worrying particularly in france uh, and in spain um and i'm going to bring in uh, gianluigi um any sort of thoughts on on that and then uh, let's talk a little bit about um economic sentiment and the ecb well clearly the increase in, in new cases uh poses a risk to the to the ensuing recovery. Um, uh, we have seen in the last uh, few weeks uh, rising cases, not just uh, in those, um, uh, not just in a few countries, but basically across Europe, but possibly with different intensity. But uh, countries like Spain and France have been seeing more than 10,000 new cases per day uh, over the last few weeks, and, uh, and numbers have risen also in Germany and Italy. Uh, Italy was, if you remember, one of the worst affected at the beginning of the pandemic. Now seems to be faring uh, relatively better than other countries. That is uh, probably reflecting the, uh, if you want, the the scare that <laughs> Italian people received uh, from the from the pandemic at the beginning. Now they are kind of more keen on on using face masks, for instance. Uh, that helps apparently to reduce the spread of the virus and maybe one of the reasons behind the lower number of cases but anyway uh, yesterday the government announced new uh, precautionary measures which are not uh, fortunately inflicting much pain on the economy at least not directly of course that much will depend on how people react to the to the new situation of course having haven't seen a period of relatively relatively quiet on COVID uh, during the summer, which was not exactly normal, but uh, kind of getting back to, to normal. And that was indeed reflected in sentiment indicators and activity indicators, like for instance, those from the European Commission, which uh, reported after the, the big collapse in activity during the lockdown, uh, an encouraging improvement in, in sentiment and momentum rising in, in economic activity up to uh, August and September. Now, uh, we'll see, of course, when the new data will be uh, made available, what is now the, the feeling of if, if the uh, new cases have also immediately had an impact on on sentiment and uh, and activity but uh, it is it seems pretty clear that uh, from a policy standpoint uh, the need for uh, further and more accommodation for an extended period of time is uh, definitely uh, full in place also in Europe in terms of um, you know this recession has been very very nuanced compared to the past in this case I know you've you've talked a lot about the big difference between a manufacturing economy and a services economy in terms of its shape of recovery. Clearly, the manufacturing side is um, you know rebounding very quickly. Looks, looks to be very firm. Auto sales in in Europe and elsewhere continue to remain you know pretty solid. And um, you know certainly I've heard of kind of shortages in the secondhand market and and prices actually rising quite heavily in the secondhand market. Um, in autos uh, tell us a little bit about that kind of nuance because i think it's again very unusual compared to you know previous recessions oh absolutely i mean the the, uh, the an historical pattern was that manufacturing was indeed the, the volatile uh, part of the economy while services were more uh, stable and hence uh, uh, that also explained why there is possibly so much focus on on manufacturing related data to gauge the, the developments in the business cycle because the services sector is more kind of stable and less uh, surprising, if you want. Uh, now, of course, because of the characteristics of, of the pandemic and, and the shock to, to the economy, uh, that was not the case uh, during, the, uh, during the, the last few months. And even at the, uh, you know, at the height of the pandemic and, and the uh, world lockdown were most uh, 
stringent. Indeed, it was the services sector that suffered the most, at least according to uh, sentiment indicator, but also the worst evidence from quarterly national account data that were released for the first half of the year. And uh, equally, during the summer, that recovery that I mentioned before was more visible in, in manufacturing, when, for instance, uh, the, the PMI uh, sectoral indices rose comfortably above 50, signaling a strong recovery uh, uh, being in place, of course, uh, mainly reflecting catch up after uh, a few months of no activity at all. While instead the services, uh, yes, rebounded, improved, uh, kind of reached the uh, expansionary territory, but only mildly so, and uh, definitely less, uh, less uh, uh, stronger rebound was visible in the services. And this is, unfortunately, uh, likely to be the case for for the next few months, and at least and then and at least uh, and, at, and at least until you know COVID cases remain high and people are less uh, uh, less happy to go for restaurants or travel and and experience uh, um, uh, situations where of course uh, um, the risk of, of getting it would be much much higher. Let's now on our journey across the Alps into uh, into Switzerland. Um, and um and you know one of the big things we tackle here on uh, on page 8 is uh, the smb and um you know our i guess not quite a hypothesis but certainly our discussion around central banks and uh, sovereign wealth funds um so uh, let's, should we start with Gianluigi and Stefan feel free to uh, to chime in uh, on uh, on this discussion well, first, before moving into the SMB, one, one thing that uh, is also again, uh, uh, I think, related to the um, to the nuanced uh, uh, impact of, of the of the pandemic, uh, the Swiss economy uh, fared so far, at least, much better than the eurozone, despite its uh, neighboring to, to to the euro area. Uh, eurozone is the largest uh, uh, export market for for uh, for Switzerland, and also the the gravity of the pandemic was fairly similar and also the stringency uh, of the measures that were uh, taken by the government were, were fairly similar. Nonetheless, the economic performance, while still bad, was significantly better than than that of the Eurozone as a whole. And that probably be, uh, falls down to uh, uh, the specialization of uh, Switzerland in uh, the production and export of uh, pharmaceutical goods, which, of course, were in high demand during the pandemic. So this is another angle from which uh, this shock is uh, clearly eventually not symmetric across countries and sectors. Good point. Well, uh, on, and of course, also in terms of, say, policy reaction and particularly monetary policy reaction, the SMB did what other central banks did. So uh, they, um, you know, uh, made sure that all banks, uh, private banks, had uh, all the liquidity they, need, they needed and uh, tried to create incentives for banks to lend to the private sector to avoid a uh, liquidity crisis transforming to a uh, solvency crisis. And, of course, uh, the SMB continued to intervene strongly on the forex market in order to uh, prevent uh, uh, a too strong an appreciation of the Swiss franc, which in, at a time of uh, heightened uncertainty, would have been and has been, in fact, under strong appreciation uh, pressure. One uh, consequence of that is that the assets now um, uh, that the SMB manages, because they are, you know, the counterpart of, of the reserves that uh, it holds, are uh, above one trillion Swiss francs. And uh, uh, this is uh, um, this is uh, of course a, a lot of money, which puts uh, the SMB to some extent in line with other sovereign wealth fund, uh, which of course manage uh, a large uh, chunks of national wealth for other countries, but follow also other uh, say other strategies in terms of investment because they have other goals than what the SMB instead is doing, which is mainly managing their reserves uh, as, a, as a, a complement to its monetary policy strategy. And that is uh, something that probably worth discussing, because if uh, these money were managed differently, uh, there could be a chance for the Swiss 
other people to get better returns and hence uh, having more resources for the next generations. And obviously that's a a very complex um, discussion, certainly within a within a central bank. Um, you know, Stefan, thoughts on SMB becoming a hedge fund? <laughs> well, I think Gianluigi uh, sort of spelled out the main the main issues there. So the SMB holds about a trillion in US dollars worth of foreign assets, and uh, it just seems entirely implausible that these funds would be needed for foreign exchange market intervention. If the Swiss franc started to depreciate, well, first of all, the SMB would be happy. Um, secondly, if it started to depreciate too much, they could just raise interest rates, would be another reason to be happy. Um, so it just seems unlikely that the funds will be used uh, uh, for monetary policy purposes. And then you you asked the question, as, as Gianluigi asked, which is that uh, if you're going to have these, um, well, perhaps not a trillion, but if you're going to have uh, 500 billion US dollars sort of, uh, as long-term assets, should you not invest them in a way that yields a higher return in long terms? Um, sovereign wealth fund tends to invest in different ways from central banks. They, they tend to have... Uh, hold higher earning assets that are less liquid. For instance, they tend to hold real estate, which very few central banks would do. Um, so it is this issue of, of uh, should you not invest in, in another way uh, and try to reap a higher return? And it's also a question of the role of the central bank in, in, in society. I mean, some commentators feel that the central bank, if it's both the central bank and and sort of implicitly sovereign wealth fund, then uh, that is a uh, it sort of becomes too large uh, player in society. It's better to have those powers sort of split up or those roles split up into several different institutions. It's also just a management question as as well. Managing monetary policy is a full time uh, endeavor. Managing one trillion in foreign exchange assets is also a full time endeavor. And uh, perhaps uh, it's it's better to have uh, to have two institutions um, doing this. Um, so I, d I don't know where this debate will will uh, will go, but. Uh, uh, I, my suspicion is that as the SMB's assets, or if the SMB's assets continue to rise, this issue will return with increasing force in the quarters and years ahead. So, um, since um, the Swiss love referendums, do you think there's a referendum on the issue? <laughs> Well, so, um, I mean, surely a referendum could be triggered on this issue, but I think for the moment, at least, this is too arcane a topic to generate a, a, lot, of public, uh, a lot of public interest. I mean, it could happen uh, at some future stage, but for the moment, I think, uh, I think in a sense, we're, we're safe. This is a very technical issue, and it's not something that will be easy for, for people to make judgments uh, about so so I so I suspect that uh, the SMB will certainly try and uh, hard to keep this uh, to to keep this issue uh, away from the public media, and I suspect there will not be much interest in it uh, at the public at, in the public at large for uh, at least now and for some time to come. But of course, it could happen in the, at the future stage. Yeah, it could be the loss of Swiss people listen to this podcast. <laughs> 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 okay, um, let's move on to. Uh, uh, to Asia, and um, uh, and the the focus has been very much on uh, Asian exports. Uh, uh, January on on page twenty on sort of slide twenty one and uh, page nine of of the booklet, uh, you put this chart together. Uh, thoughts on um, on 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 Asian exports? Yes, uh, Asian exports are. If you want the mirror image of the improvement in the manufacturing sector, which uh, was seen during the summer and after the lockdown months, of course. And um, of course, it reflects the, the improvement in global trade, which was one of the uh, main victims of, of the lockdown. And not just because there was clearly much less demand for, uh, for goods uh, globally, but also because it was extremely difficult to deliver them during the lockdown months. Now, once the uh, the measures to contain the virus were relaxed. Of course, trade uh, started again, and as uh, historically has been the case, Asian exports were ready to, uh, you know, benefit from that and 
also reflecting the improvement global trend. On top of that, uh, it should be considered that uh, another, if you want, asymmetric aspect of the pandemic. As we said before, with Switzerland, uh, there was a, uh, and still is, a huge demand for uh, health-related uh, goods, be them uh, pharma, uh, pharmaceutical goods, but also equipment, and also for uh, all the equipment that, uh, you know, allows you to work remotely and to be connected with your relatives uh, remotely. And this is, uh, these are always been uh, representing a large share of Asian exports. So also from this angle, the recovery in, in Asian exports, which of course will benefit overall their economies, uh, are reflective of the uh, characteristics of this uh, of this pandemic. In saying growth terms, of course, that will benefit, and not by chance. China is uh, uh, the only country among uh, in the globe which is still expected to deliver positive GDP growth in real terms this year, and this is clearly quite uh, outstanding, of, of, although, of course, that growth rate is much less than was expected at the beginning of the year. So um, one of the other aspects here on uh, on page nine that we discuss is the uh, in, uh, increasing influence of China on the uh, on the China Belt and Road, uh, driven by the China Belt and Road uh, initiative. Uh, and there's some kind of very interesting data here about um, uh, the, the BRI, as it called. Uh, so I'm going to ask Paul to uh, to summarise the key issues here. People will have heard about the Belt and Road Initiative, but maybe they'll have heard about some of its other names because uh, to start with, we called it the New Silk Road. Um, then uh, eventually we've moved to call it the, the Belt and Road Initiative. And that involves China investing in many countries around the world and particularly in the rest of Asia. Actually getting the numbers together on what they've done is quite a task. And it is really quite strange that they come from the American Enterprise Institute <laughs> that tracks China's investment around the world. Um, not just formal BRI member countries, but other countries. That The Latin American data, Latin American countries not in BRI. But if you look at slide 22, I mean, we've got a group of countries there. Bangladesh, Myanmar, Vietnam, the Philippines, Malaysia, Cambodia, um, that are expected to grow next year at Chinese growth rates, if, if you can describe them like that, between 6 and 9%. And they are all big recipients of BRI sort of investment spending over the course of, the, uh, over the course of recent years. And for a lot of those countries also, they don't really have very much of their own sort of government debt outstanding. And again, the point we made earlier, rapid growth and relatively cheap financing is a stable sort of recipe for these countries' sort of growth rates. So on the face of it, that's all really sort of very encouraging. But we do know that BRI investment in some areas has got a bit of a bad name. Uh, you know, when Sri Lanka couldn't keep up its interest payments on the BRI loan, then China took a long-term lease on Hambototan, the port in Sri Lanka. And I think more worrying is that, again, in, on slide 22, the biggest BRI investment uh, by China in the region is in Pakistan. Uh, that's received an astonishing total, 60 billion of BRI investment. But it's going to be one of the weakest growing countries uh, during the course of 2021 on the course of the, uh, on the basis of the IMF's forecast. So, it's not a magic formula. I mean, in a country like Pakistan, you've got a lot of ingrained sort of structural sort of weaknesses and problems to overcome. I think Pakistan also says a little bit about a little bit about India. Maybe that's not the sort of fairest sort of fairest comparison of two sort of <laughs> countries. But the point is that they're both sort of young demographically. Pakistan particularly sort of young. Um, but I've taken this phrase uh, from Charles Goodhart's new book that neither of those countries has a single-minded China-esque model of growth. And that, to me, strikes me as the most important thing. I mean, 
China has been able to direct its growth really very, very effectively over you know three decades or so. It has a an effective state bureaucracy, like it or or not, and it has a clear plan. And I think that's the thing that is lacking in some other countries. I mean, arguably, you could point to the the fast growing countries that I mentioned earlier and say, well, they're essentially going to go along with that sort of China plan, sort of by and large. Um, but India is not going to do that. And India, of course, does not have any BRI investment. It won't take it. Uh, but Pakistan has got loads. So there is a conflict in that respect in the region. Yeah. And I, strategically, when I when I look at all of those kind of countries, obviously, China and India have been squaring up on, on the borders there. Um, and, you know, kind of looking at the, the BRI investment in Sri Lanka, Bangladesh you have here of Pakistan it is being India is being surrounded by um by Chinese allies in 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 that respect um, yeah it's it, and that's sort of worrying in a sort of geopolitical sense yeah and yeah. and you know we 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 know that you know for for a very very long time so countries in a weak economic position you know do a attract all sorts of other problems or other problems develop in that sort of environment you know uh, strong growth environment enables you to you know cope with a lot of difficulties you know weak growth environment is a, a different one entirely absolutely again again a very very interesting topic and no doubt something that we'll come back to uh, you know over the coming months and quarters uh, so we're going to flip now to the other end of the world uh, to uh, Latin America and um, uh, obviously they have been in their winter now coming to spring and to summer um, and you know if um, we sort of compare you know COVID uh, and the experience we had in Europe over the summer and LATAM we probably see um, you know those um, those new cases new deaths are actually coming down hopefully quite dramatically um Joaquin, do you want to give us um, your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, thanks, Moss. So um, that is exactly one of the one of the problems. Like the experience of the European summer um, uh, with uh, with a spike in in the number of cases and in the contagion rates uh, is something that uh, most governments in Latin America are are following quite closely. Uh, in particular, as uh, there's a lot of countries that depend on tourism a lot, and they they want to profit from from that, but they don't want to get their um, uh, the, the number of cases out of control, uh, and and kind of throwing all the all the hard work they've been doing in in some cases uh, just over over the summer period, uh, and definitely the number of cases have started to to fall in the region. Um, this, is, this is something that, that goes in line with, um, with the evolution of the epidemic in, in the northern hemisphere. Um, however, the responses to, to some of these uh, to, to, to this pandemic has been, has been very different. With some countries that remain with quite stringent lockdowns, uh, so for example, the case of, of Argentina, where, where schools remain closed since since March and pretty much getting close to uh, students uh, losing an entire year of, uh, of uh, school. Um, in other places, uh, such as uh, such as Uruguay, has been one of the exceptions, maybe with a, with a very low contagion rate, and where the economy is now uh, almost going back to 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 more normal levels. Let's say uh, the problem now that, that appears is is how we're going to to rebuild this uh, and how. Uh, following the, the sharp decline in economic activity during the second quarter, uh, how are, are these economies going to come back and, and switch the, the power on again? Before we talk about China again, because I think um, uh, you know we we, we uh, bring in the China card with respect to investments in Latin America. Um, anything about sort of monetary easing, monetary policy that um, that, that you want to bring forward here? Yeah, so there are two things here. So one. One is that, uh, given that there's not that much fiscal space for, for some of these countries to to keep increasing uh, spending, uh, then the source of funds to try to rebuild these economies are going to have to come from from other sources. As you mentioned, monetary easing is is one of the options in in some countries uh, that have seen. Uh, um, a sharp decline in inflation rates, such as Brazil, such as uh, Chile, Colombia, Peru as well. Um, and, and so they still have some space, or very limited, 
to continue to to cut interest rates. So say Chile and, and Brazil are, are almost pretty much at the lower um, levels of their of their rates. Um, in the case of Colombia and um, uh, and Chile, they they started using quantitative easing for the first time uh, in in their history, and it, it was quite a successful program uh, trying to control the. Um, the, the sharp increase in, in government bond yields that, that occurred uh, over the over the winter months, um, and then the the other let's say sources of, of uh, funds that, that probably the these countries can access will come uh, from from three other um, three other sources. The first one would be from from the IMF. Uh, the IMF recently created. In, I think it was '09 after the, the global financial crisis, they created a, a flexible credit line, uh, which uh, which allows countries with good uh, economic fundamentals and, and, and good history of repayment, let's say, uh, to have like a pre-approved line of credit that is um, is kind of condition-free in order to to fight the pandemic. And Colombia has been one of the countries that has already announced that it's going to um, make use of this credit line, which at the moment only has Chile, Colombia, Mexico, and Peru as the, as the countries that are pre-approved, let's say, for this type of credits. Um, the second one would be maybe something more uh, appropriate for the region is the, the Inter-American Development Bank, which is likely to play a greater role uh, going forward following the, um, the new uh, head of the, of the IDB, who uh, is Mauricio Clever Carone, who's a Cuban-American official, very close to the White House, uh, and it's one one of the one of the appointments from um, from President Trump to to this position, becoming the first president of the of the IDB that that is not from uh, from Latin America. And this goes in line with uh, what uh, you've been saying before, what we've been talking about over the last outlook um, documents over a tripolar world where the U.S., uh, China, and, and Europe become the three big centers of of the world. And, and finally, as you as you rightly mentioned, the, the influence of China uh, in in the region. So China has been since uh, 2005 has been one of the main uh, drivers of investment, foreign investment into into the region, accounting to almost 70 billion dollars uh, in in the region. And Brazil has been one of the countries that have been the, the largest recipients of of these funds, mostly in the agricultural sector. So remember that. Uh, Brazil is kind of one of the main suppliers of soybeans in the southern hemisphere for for China, and therefore uh, that could be another source of uh, of, of financing uh, for for the region. Uh, maybe more conditional on, on political um, uh, on political factors, uh, and also this is something that that the IMF has recently pointed out uh, of having and, and the World Bank as well as uh, these individual country-to-country -country loans are sometimes not disclosed in the appropriate way and therefore this causes some problems for international institutions to actually see the, the, the amount of the debt that these countries have with, uh, with each other. So, so yeah, definitely it's, uh, it will be um, a tough situation for, for Latin Americans to, to countries to, to recover from now on. It will be highly dependent on source of funding and on, on um, a cyclical recovery of the, the rest of the world. And I think um, to, to, to end this uh, point, something on Latin America, I think going back to the point that uh, Paul mentioned, you know, vulnerable countries, you know, Argentina, Venezuela, and Venezuela in particular taking Chinese money, obviously, you know, that, uh, that buys plenty of political influence, particularly as those countries are in... Um, you know, financial difficulties or have been in financial difficulties. So, uh, you know, definitely something that, again, that is uh, worth watching very carefully. Uh, so thank you very much for working for that. So um, the last piece and the document, we for those who don't know the document that well, we, we always have a special focus really talking about something that's uh, maybe, you know, out of the macro f um, sphere, maybe a little bit more kind of bottom up and, and, and left field. Um, and, um, and and this time round, we're tackling the the very thorny issue of COVID nineteen and universities. Uh, I have my daughter, who is a new entrant into a university very recently, uh, and something obviously is quite close to my heart at this moment in time. But um, um, obviously, COVID has has created all sorts of havoc 
with universities and particularly financing of uh, universities. Uh, and the question we we try to tackle here is um, is pricing and cost of university education as uh, and there's a great chart here of uh, the cost of one year of Harvard versus the inflation rate. And uh, and Paul, you put this together. It's actually quite astonishing. It is astonishing, isn't it? I mean, gosh, uh, $75,000 a year for, you know, your tuition, board and lodging at Harvard. And that doesn't include all sorts of other things you might do, like expeditions to Antarctica in your holidays or whatever else <laughs> you might be doing. Um, I mean, you know, the the number Harvard publishes the numbers itself, but going back to 2004, interestingly, the cost comes from the Forbes cost of living extremely well index. So, I mean, if you're a, if you're rich and you want your children to have the best, and they're offered a place at Harvard, you're not going to stint. You're going to pay up the seventy-five thousand. Hopefully. This is for families that don't have more than sort of one or two children. I mean, you've got three or four going to Harvard. I mean, my word, this spells a lot of problems. Um, but 75000 a year, you probably will pay it. But the question we raise is, so at the other extreme, you know, do you pay 9000 a year for the tuition fees in the UK? Or do you pay really quite a lot less in some sort of emerging economies for state-provided education? We've got a ranking of the costs, which... You know, many emerging economies are only you know around about sort of five, six, seven thousand sort of dollars a year. So I think there's going to be a lot more emphasis on how useful this education is and what you get as a result of your as a result of your, that that sort of spending. I remember we took the family on holiday to the states. This is about ten years ago, and on the radio came um, a, a piece about what sort of university degrees were popular. And there's one degree in golf course management. <laughs> uh, we thought this was hysterical, <laughs> that you could have a master's in turf care. But don't joke, because I found out that golf course management is one of the most sought after vocational degrees uh, in the US, there are, you have to treat those golf courses with due respect, and you probably can't do that without a master's in turf care. <laughs> um, and you've got other the growth of other vocational degrees now. I mean, James Dyson with his sort of uh, Dyson University now engineering degrees, which as far as I understand from hearing him on the radio yesterday, got three days of practical sort of working experience, two days of university type sort of education. And you're going to be a pretty skilled engineer coming out of the Dyson sort of university. So it's a question of, you know, what's what's worth paying for at one level. And then the other one, I think, for emerging economies is emerging economies, particularly not just emerging economies. Um, does the move online for a lot of lectures and courses and these mass open online courses, does that mean that you can get a better quality uh, of degree just if you've got the right sort of equipment? And I think that right sort of equipment means all the proper you know, technology and broadband connections and so on at a much lower price. And I guess the answer to that must be yes, you should be able to do that. So I see it as a bit of a winner-takes-all situation. I mean, we have it in so many things, don't we? You know, the top football players, top sportsmen, top universities, I think will become more and more valuable. They'll be able to keep their fees high and increase them rapidly. We talk about Harvard increasing its fees by 10% during the global financial crisis. I mean, this is a recession-proof uh, institution, but other institutions are not like that. So it raises loads of loads of really interesting issues here about how we spend money on university education and what, what sort of degrees you want and what are going to be useful. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, the, the first thing that I thought about when I saw uh, the, uh, the cost of one year at Harvard and the, the the inflation plus um uh, fee increases you know uh, 
clearly, you know, getting a Harvard education has meant they've actually put pricing into practice <laughs> and created a, an even greater premium in terms of pricing. Um, but 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 it certainly does bring the case, and you know, um, and uh, I'm sure there's probably a Harvard business case study somewhere. But um, you know, what do they do? with respect to kind of online do they create themselves an online branded university reaching out to uh, you know hundreds and hundreds of thousands if not millions of students in faraway locations and offer them the, the same kind of harvard you know experience um at uh, at, at a cheaper price well, I had to do some research on this, Mose. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, I really would like a Stanford economics degree. So I, <laughs> um, I mean, I've got one from Durham. It's sort of like passable, but it's not all that good. Um, and so I went on the Stanford sort of, you know, the open courses they do and looked at the economics ones. There are two that you can sign up for, but are there not currently available, unfortunately? Um, so a lot of the things that I would think of doing are, currently not available um so yeah you've got to there's going to be some opening up and some sort of proper pricing what tends to be available that i saw fairly sort of basic courses and then you can self-certify you can say yes i did that course and you get a certificate which costs you a couple of hundred dollars or whatever <laughs> so we've got to move a long way from that you know before i can say yes i really did earn an economics degree from stanford part-time mm -hmm. um i'm not going to be able to do it at the moment uh it's, it's tricky i suspect but the, the the direction of travel i think is now and certainly has been set now with um w with covid and the experience we've had with covid and as more education you know goes online um you know we're going to see companies like dyson as you mentioned i think google have also uh recently launched a, a, an education platform I, I suspect the direction of travel is is kind of set and we will um certainly start to see maybe a lot more players in in the private sector also coming into this space and obviously techno technology enablement is going to be a key, key driver to that as well so i, I get I, absolutely fascinating you know discussion on uh, on on the university situation and uh no doubt something that uh, you know many investors are going to be very interested in uh, over the coming over the coming years um excellent so um uh gentlemen thank you very much for uh, for taking this uh, insight walk um i think it was uh, you know very interesting lots of things to uh, to talk about um and um you know i think we'll stop there and um if indeed you enjoyed um, this discussion you know, please do email us at beyond at fgam.com and uh, we look forward to um, speaking to you again very shortly